0: Unfortunately, we have all had the experience of knowing someone or interacting with someone who claimed one thing with words but did another in life. It really is a grievous experience. Sadly, we've almost become numb to how bad it is or how hurtful it is because. It seems that so many of our politicians do this kind of thing all the time. They claim to be men or women of character. And then a story comes out about their illicit behavior or about their secret lives, revealing that they are not anything what they claim to be. They claim to be men or women who want the best for their state or their community or their country or their constituents. And then a story comes out about their dishonesty or their activities of legally padding their own bank accounts. We've seen this so many times that it is hardly even news any longer. But that isn't the worst kind of inconsistency, not by a long shot. The worst kind of inconsistency is when we as Christians claim one thing, but we do another. For example, we call ourselves Christians, but we don't keep our word when we give it to people. We call ourselves Christians, but we use foul and coarse language. We call ourselves Christians, but we don't pay our bills when people do work for us. We call ourselves Christians, but we tell and laugh at the same dirty, filthy jokes as unbelievers. We call ourselves Christians, but We lie on our income tax form or in other financial matters because it's for our own benefit. We call ourselves Christians, but we don't give an honest day's work for a day's pay. We call ourselves Christians, but we watch the same immoral shows that unbelievers watch, and we listen to the same immoral music as unbelievers. We call ourselves Christians but we lose our temper and blow up at people when we're at work or at school or at home or during athletic competition or in other arenas of life. Beloved, those are the worst kind of inconsistencies imaginable because when we call ourselves Christians and our lives don't back it up, then we are a turnoff to others regarding the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that is serious business. I can't even begin to think of words to use to tell you how serious that is. Don't do that. Don't do that. If you are going to do those kinds of things and others like them, please do not call yourself a Christian even if you are one. Do the Lord a favor and don't tell others that you are a Christian and don't tell others that you go to church. You cause more damage than you can imagine. Now don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not suggesting that if you claim to be a Christian, then you have to be perfect. You have to be flawless. That's that's impossible, this side of eternity. We all have flaws. We all have weaknesses. We all have shortcomings. And people are generally understanding of that and usually accepting of that. They know we all have feet of clay. What I'm talking about is blatant contradictions. I'm talking about glaring inconsistencies. For example, I talked with a man recently who bumped into a guy from our church at an airport, and they began to have a conversation. During the course of the conversation, this guy from our church began to use language that was utterly foul and crude. Now, this guy would never talk like that in church, but for whatever reason, he felt completely comfortable talking like that at an out-of-town airport. Here's another example. A while back, I was talking with a businessman from our community who had done work for four different people in our church who as of that time had not bothered to pay. Hopefully it's changed since then, but I don't know. What I do know is how wrong those kinds of behaviors are and how damaging it is when it is done by people who let others know that they are Christians and who let others know that they are church attenders. This is a very serious issue to God, and He addresses it often in His Word. He addresses the common practice of saying one thing but doing another. The text to which we come this morning is one such passage. Let's turn together to 1 John chapter 2 as we resume our consideration of this powerful little letter of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 2. Please follow along as I read verses 6 through 11, though we've covered several of these verses already. I want to get the context back into our minds and in our thinking. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brother, and I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Last Lord's Day, we focused our attention on verses 7 and 8, where John begins to address the all-important issue of love. He reminds his readers that the commandment to love is an old commandment because it goes all the way back to Hebrew Scripture, or we usually use the phrase the Old Testament. It goes all the way back to Hebrew Scripture and all the way back to the ministry of Jesus. Now remember, John is writing these words some 50 to 60 years after the ministry of Jesus. So he is saying, as he reminds the readers of the importance of love, I'm not writing anything new to you. This goes all the way back to Hebrew Scripture. It goes all the way back to the ministry of Jesus. Back in Leviticus 19.18, God had told His people Israel, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus reiterated that that command when He gave a two-part answer to the question, What is the greatest commandment in the law? In the second half of His answer, Jesus quoted the words of Leviticus 19.18 by saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not only that, but Jesus also gave that command a new emphasis and a new motivation in John thirteen thirty four and 35. He said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the old command is also, in some senses, a new commandment. The commandment to love is not completely new, but Jesus did give it a new emphasis and Jesus did give it a new motivation. Jesus said that we are to love like he loved and that this kind of love would be the hallmark of those who belong to him. Those features give the old command of love a new dimension, which is why John could say here in verses 7 and 8, that there's a sense in which he is writing a new commandment. It is new in that Jesus elevated it, along with loving God, above all the other commands in the Old Covenant, and Jesus modeled it in his life. Jesus modeled it in his ministry. He loved his disciples even when they disappointed him. He loved his disciples even when they broke his heart. He loved his followers so much that even when he was being led to Calvary, he comforted the women who wept as the soldiers led him away. That is selfless love. That was a new kind of love that no one had ever seen before. And that's why John says here in verse 8 that there's a sense in which this command to love is new. It's old, but it's new. It's old because it goes back to the days of Jesus and goes all the way back to the days of Hebrew Scripture, but it was seen in a new way in the Lord Jesus Christ. He emphasized it in his life. He elevated it in his ministry. John saw that. John was an eyewitness to that for three years. John heard that. Which is why he had so much to say about love in his letters. Notice how he elaborates on the subject in verse 9. He writes, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. The Christian, the child of God, who claims to be walking in the light, who claims to be doing well spiritually, but doesn't love his brother or sister, is a Christian who is deceiving himself. He's walking in darkness. Surely you know it is possible for a child of God who has been enlightened by the gospel To make choices that are inconsistent with the light. To do things that are inconsistent with the light. Just because we belong to the Lord and have been enlightened by the gospel doesn't guarantee that our actions are always consistent. It would be nice if that were a guarantee. It's not a guarantee. You and I have done things in life. We have said things. We have made choices that are inconsistent with our position as children of light. That's why Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.11 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Don't participate in the unfruitful works of darkness. The obvious assumption of those two statements is that it is possible for us as children of light to engage in unfruitful works of darkness or to walk in darkness. That's a distinct possibility for any of us. The Christian who believes otherwise is deceiving himself. If you think that because you are a Christian, because you have received Jesus Christ, because you have been born from above, if you think that that automatically guarantees that you will always live life like you're supposed to, then you haven't read the Bible. You haven't read the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with exhortations to us to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord, which clearly means that it is possible for us to live lives that are not pleasing to the Lord. Now, it's bad enough when we do things that are not pleasing to the Lord. But it's even worse when we do that and we claim that everything is right between us and the Lord. We claim that everything is fine. That's what John is addressing here. Notice how he words it in verse 9. He who says... He's in the light. He claims one thing. He claims to be walking in the light. He claims to be doing well spiritually. He says he is in the light, but he hates his brother. He's in darkness even until now. John knew, as does every perceptive pastor, that Christians sometimes feign spirituality while engaging in acts of disobedience when we are making choices that are not pleasing to the Lord, when we are doing things that are not right, when we are holding or harboring attitudes that are not okay, we have the tendency to practice self-denial to convince ourselves and to convince others that we are doing just fine spiritually. When we are not walking as children of light, to use the words of Ephesians 5.8, or when we are involved with the unfruitful works of darkness, to use the words of Ephesians 5.11, then we are walking in darkness. We are not doing okay spiritually. We're not doing fine. We're not doing well. We are not practicing the truth, no matter what we claim. Truth is not merely what we say, it's what we do. It's how we live. So once again, as John did back in chapter 1, here in chapter 2, he again addresses this all-important issue. When we claim we are walking in fellowship with God, we claim we are walking in communion and harmony with God, but we are making choices consistent with the darkness, we are deceiving ourselves. Now why would we do this? Why would we make this claim? A number of possible reasons. Maybe we want our Christian friends to think we are more spiritual than we really are. So we make the claim or we give the impression that we are walking in the light when in reality we're not. I have seen this so many times through the years, sadly. I have seen Christians who were unquestionably making wrong choices in their lives or wrong choices in their marriage. But they give the impression they are doing fine. They give the impression they're walking in fellowship with God. That's the kind of thing John is addressing here. He already addressed it back in chapter 1. If we say, but, and here again, if we say or he who says, but, the one who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. You aren't walking in the light. This is what John wants us to understand. You are not walking in the light. You are not in fellowship with God if you hate another Christian. If you hate another child of God. Regardless of what he or she has done to you, you are not walking in the light. You are not walking in fellowship. Those are contradictory, mutually exclusive. To say, I'm walking in the light, but you hate another child of God. Verse 10 He who loves his brother, now of course you know John is using this term not merely to refer to a biological brother. Brother in the family of God, brother or sister. He who loves his brother abides in the light. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. This is the way we are supposed to live. When we love our brothers or sisters in Christ, we are abiding in the light, says John. Abide, as you probably know by now, abide was one of John's favorite terms. He picked it up from the teaching of Jesus in John 15 where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, you need to abide in me. And if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Jesus exhorted his disciples to abide in him. And later in this chapter, down in verse 28, John will exhort us to abide in Christ. Here in verse 10, he speaks of abiding in the light. It's almost synonymous with abiding in Christ. When we abide in the light, there are no blind spots in our lives to cause us to stumble. We can see clearly how we ought to live. This is the Christian in whose life there are no glaring inconsistencies. This is the child of God in whose life there are no glaring inconsistencies of saying one thing, but living a different way. So John adds verse 11. But here's the contrast. He who hates his brother, not merely biological brother, he who hates his brother, his sister, he who hates another Christian because of what he or she has done or supposedly done, whatever the case may be, but he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eye. Hatred is a blinding sin. Hatred prompts people to do some shocking things. Anger prompts people to do some shocking things. Lack of forgiveness, bitterness prompts people to do some shocking things. And Christians are just as capable of such things as non-Christians. Don't deceive yourself into believing otherwise. Christians are just as capable of such things as non-Christians. That's the warning of this verse here in verse 11. The Christian who hates his brother in Christ, the Christian who hates his sister in Christ, lives in a dark, dark world. The Christian who is filled with anger, The child of God who is filled with a lack of forgiveness, the child of God who is filled with bitterness, has allowed himself or herself to be blinded by a refusal to love. Remember, this section is basically a call to love, beginning in verse 7. Back in verses 7 and 8, John opened this section by talking about the old new commandment of love. So that's what he's addressing here in verses 9 through 11. These verses are basically the flip side of the coin or the opposite of love. The person who chooses not to love is putting himself or herself in darkness and making himself vulnerable to sin and has allowed himself to become blind. That's part of the reason why it's so important that we choose to love. Just as a side note on this subject, the obvious implication of this little section of Scripture is that there will be things in our lives that happen to us within the body of Christ that would prompt us not to love. Correct? I mean, you understand what I mean by that? If, it, if there weren't going to be things that would happen to us, things that, that maybe offend us, hurt us, uh, things that are difficult for us, if that never happened, we wouldn't need these kinds of words. It would just be easy to love. The implication is things will happen to you in the body of Christ. Things will happen to you in the family of God that are going to stretch you and force you to choose if you will love or if you will not love. And the command here is you must choose to love. So what does it mean to choose to love? It's easy for us to say that we love. It's very easy for us to throw that phrase around. But what does it really look like in specific ways? Well, just as we did last week when we looked at verses 7 and 8, I want us to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to answer that question. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and we'll look at some of the verses we didn't get to last week. Remember, John exhorts us to love in his letter. And here in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us what that love looks like, how it fleshes out in a practical way. These verses here in 1 Corinthians 13, commonly called the love chapter, these verses are not so much a definition of love as they are a display of love. You could could almost say it this way. It's impossible to define love in a cold, sterile definition. And there's a sense in which to try to do so cheapens the essence and quality of love. The best way to define love is to describe what it looks like when it is fleshed out in a practical way. That's what we have here in verses 4 through 7. Although our English translations make it appear that most of these descriptions of love are adjectives... In the Greek text, they are actually verbs. There was a popular song not too many years ago, a contemporary Christian song, called Love is a Verb. That is exactly right from this passage. Love is a verb. Paul is not giving a theoretical description of love in the ethereal realm. He's not talking philosophically. He's not talking theoretically. He is using verbs to describe what love does or what love does not do and how it fleshes out in practical ways in everyday life. Now we looked last, Lord's Day, at verses 4 and 5. So notice what the description looks like as it continues. Verse 6, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Now, grasping this verse takes a little more thinking than what was needed in verses 4 and 5. It's it's easy to see why Paul would say love is patient and love is kind. And love does not envy. Love does not seek its own. We commonly think of love in those terms. We often think of love in that way. So we can probably relate more to verses 4 and 5, at least initially, but what does Paul mean by the phrase, love does not rejoice in iniquity? If we remember that our ultimate responsibility is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, then that will give us some insight into the reason why Paul says love does not rejoice in iniquity. Iniquity is an affront to our thrice-holy God, and iniquity destroys people's lives. Therefore, if our love is what it ought to be, if we really love, if we really love God, we will really love others, we won't rejoice in iniquity. Iniquity is something to be despised, not rejoiced in. But there are many times when people, maybe even ourselves, rejoice in iniquity. Now, when you first hear that, you might say, I don't think I do that. So let's give some examples. What does it mean to rejoice in iniquity? What does it look like? Here's one example. There are many people who brag about their sin as if it is something to be proud of. I'm sure you've heard people say, probably even heard Christians say, you know what I did? I did this and this and this and this. Others will say, I gave him a piece of my mind. Or, I told him where to go. I told him where to get off. Some men brag about sin because they think it proves their masculinity. Some women brag about sin because they think it proves their craftiness. Some teenagers brag about sin because it earns them acceptance among their peers. People brag about their sin because they think they are really something for being able to do what they did without any apparent consequences. Many years ago, Eternity Magazine had an article about Ernest Hemingway. It's when he was alive. He was the focus, the feature of this article. In the article, he asserted that people can sin and get away with it without having to worry about consequences. He also said that the old idea of the prudishness of sin and the Victorian fundamentalist viewpoint that there are consequences of sin was a bunch of baloney. The article went on to say that Hemingway was living proof of the fact that you can sin and get away with it, and that there are no consequences, no ramifications, no implications in life. Interestingly, ten years later to the very day that the article was written, Hemingway took a gun and shot himself in the head. He rejoiced over sin only so long. But that's not the only way people rejoice in iniquity. We can also be guilty of rejoicing in the iniquity of others. This is why a lot of people buy newspapers and especially gossip magazines. They are fascinated with the sins of other people. Many who read those stories are not merely reading news. They are living the sins of other people vicariously. They are excited to read about what others are doing and others are experiencing. That's rejoicing in iniquity. Another aspect of rejoicing in iniquity is when we are glad to hear about the sins of people we don't like. We're glad to hear about the sins of people against whom we are holding a grudge. We want to hear that. That's the wrong heart attitude. That's rejoicing in iniquity. Another way to rejoice in iniquity is to be glad about other people's sins, even if we hold nothing against them, but just to be glad because it makes us look better than them. Of course, we would never rejoice externally. We would never be so blatant and obvious. We would only rejoice in the secretness of our own hearts, but that's not love. Another way we are guilty of rejoicing in iniquity is by the sin of gossip. Some people love to talk about the faults and sins of others. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Therefore, love is not happy to hear about other people's faults. Love is not happy to hear about other people's sins. And love certainly isn't happy to pass it on to others. Iniquity is an affront. To our thrice holy God, and iniquity destroys people's lives. Therefore, if our love is what it ought to be, then we will not rejoice in iniquity. The flip side of the coin is the next phrase in verse 6. It says, but, by contrast, love rejoices in the truth. Instead of rejoicing in iniquity, love rejoices when truth is taught, when truth is held up, and when truth is lived in life. Beloved, it is so crucial, especially in our day and age, to understand that love and truth are not antithetical. Love and truth are not opposites. That's the philosophy behind the ecumenical movement. The ecumenical movement is the movement within Christianity that says we need to break down all the doctrinal walls, all doctrinal barriers, and simply love each other in the name of Jesus. That might sound good, but what it is actually saying is this. We need to throw out truth because truth is divisive. Therefore, we need to throw out truth and just love each other. I cannot cannot tell you how pervasive that thinking is today in society and even in the church as a whole. But listen, that is not love. Love rejoices in and with the truth. There are people who claim to love God. There are people who claim to love Jesus, but they live a life that is contrary to the truth of God's Word, contrary to the truth of God's commandments. That is not love, no matter what they think. That is not love. Love rejoices with and in the truth. That leads us to verse 7. It says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. As you can see, this verse rattles off four powerful actions performed by love, or four things that love does. The first one is, love bears all things. This phrase means to to pass over in silence. Genuine love doesn't make an issue out of every mistake in someone's life, every misstep, every wrong, every failure, every shortcoming. Love doesn't point out all the wrongs someone has done to him or to her. You know, there are people who violate this in their marriage, and they wonder why they don't have a good marriage. Listen, God did not bring you into your marriage to point out every mistake, every misstep, every wrong, every failure, every flaw, every shortcoming in your spouse. That's not love. If that's the way you function in relationships, then don't be surprised if you don't have good relationships. Love doesn't behave that way. Love doesn't act that way. Love bears all things. That is, love is willing to go the extra mile to pass over in silence the offenses of other people. This is what 1 Peter 4.8 is referring to when it says love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10.12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all wrongs. Love is not looking for wrongs. Love is not quick to see wrongs. Love is not quick to notice wrongs. And whenever possible, love will go the extra mile to pass over in silence the offenses of others. That's what love does, it bears all things. The next phrase says, Love believes all things. This simply means that love believes the best in others. Love is not suspicious. Love does not assume the worst. Love gives the benefit of the doubt to the other person. Now, this does not mean, please hear me, this does not mean love is blind, as the saying goes. No. It's, in a sense, almost the opposite. Loving others doesn't mean we don't see wrongs. It doesn't mean we don't see weaknesses. We do see them. Love is not blind, but we extend grace to people we love. We see them and yet still extend grace. Believing that even when wrong is manifested or weakness is manifested, the person will learn from it. The person will turn from it. The person will grow from it. That's what love does. The next phrase in verse 7 says, Love hopes all things. This is a natural extension of the last phrase. Love believes the best about the other person. Love gives the benefit of the doubt, but frankly, honestly, there are times when the facts are that the other person isn't living in such a way to give us reason to believe a lot of good. What do we do then? We hold on to hope. We hope. When you really love someone, you don't give up on him. You don't give up on her. You continue to hold out hope. If we really love someone, we don't write him off as being unsalvageable. Or her. we don't write her off as being unsalvageable. We continue to hold out hope. As someone has well said, love refuses to take failure as final. But that can be an agonizing way to live at times. You know that. You have friends, family members who are living in such a way that it's just heartbreaking to you and you want to believe the best, but the facts are you can't believe what isn't true, so you hold out hope and you you refuse to take failure as final, and that is an agonizing way to live. If you love someone who is not doing well and you continue to hold on to hope, that can be painful to endure. Week after week, month after month, year after year. That's why the last phrase in verse 7 says, love endures all things. Love endures the pain of disappointments. Love endures the pain of wounds, the pain of sins, the pain of hurts, and a host of other things. That's why the phrase says, love endures all things. It doesn't just endure little annoyances. It doesn't just endure minor annoyances. It endures mistreatment. It endures unfair treatment. It endures brokenheartedness and many other kinds of letdowns. That's what love does. Love stretches as far as it can. And love endures as far as it should go. So John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in his letter, commands us to love. He says this is nothing new. It goes all the way back to Hebrew Scripture. goes all the way back to the ministry of Jesus. It's new in that the way Jesus elevated it and the way Jesus modeled it. So don't forget the old, new commandment to love. He tells us to do it. Here in 1 Corinthians 13, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, tells us what it looks like. It is said that In a churchyard near the old village of Leamington, England, there stands a tombstone with the following inscription, Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. In contrast, there's a plain tombstone at St. Paul's Cathedral in London With an inscription that reads, sacred to the memory of General Charles George Gordon, who at all times and everywhere gave his strength to the weak, his substance to the poor, his sympathy to the suffering, and his heart to God. How is your epitaph going to read when you're gone? Will you be remembered as a person who loved others or a person who loved self? Will you be remembered as a person who said one thing but did another? Will you be remembered as a person who claimed one thing but lived in a different manner? The Holy Spirit of God says to us this morning, don't say it. Show it. Don't say it with your words. Show it in your life. Let's bow together as we close in prayer. As you bow your head, close your eyes to contemplate and meditate upon what you've seen in God's word this morning. These statements from scripture are probing to say the least. They are convicting in our hearts if we Are at all receptive. And so take a moment or two just to reflect and ask the Spirit of God to search your heart. And as you have maybe been convicted as I was going through this, ask the Spirit of God for the strength, the grace, to be more what we are called to be as people of God. If there are areas in your life of glaring inconsistency where you say one thing, you Claim one thing, but you live in a completely different manner. You need to confess that to the Lord as sin. Confess it to Him as something that is damaging to His reputation. If you claim to be a Christian, but misrepresent Him so, so glaringly. And then after confessing it as sin and seeking God's forgiveness, then ask God for the strength to live like you claim or like you say with your words. If we have been receptive at all this morning, if we have been willing to hear at all, then surely the Spirit of God has spoken to our hearts in one way or another. So let's ask the Lord to seal that to our hearts, to change us, to enable us to make changes, to be what we should be. Now, if you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, Don't get the idea that you need to sort of clean up your life and get things in order. No, what you need to do if you don't know Jesus Christ is you need to surrender your life to Him. You need to ask Him to come into your life, to forgive you of your sins, to be your personal Lord and Savior. Tell Him you want to give Him your life. You want to live for Him. That's the starting point. And then once you come to know Christ, He will begin the process of changing you In remaking you to be more like him. Father, thank you for how very direct, how specific, how relevant, how applicable your word is to our lives. If we will just listen, if we will just be open and receptive. And as we have looked this morning at the all important subject of love, once again, surely we, if we will be honest, We all fall short. We see that. We recognize it. And so we want to be strengthened to be more like you've called us to be. So enable us to be men and women who love in the manner as is defined or described in 1 Corinthians 13. And Father, I do pray for anyone here in our midst who maybe is a a genuine child of yours, a true believer true Christian but says one thing and then lives another out in the community I pray Father you would do whatever is necessary to bring conviction to stop that so that your son the Lord Jesus is not misrepresented and even so that your people those who do love you and seek to live consistent lives are not painted with the same broad brush of hypocrisy And in closing, I pray for anyone who is gathered here with us this morning who does not know your Son, the Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would bring understanding, enlightenment, conviction, so that this would be the day, maybe this very moment, that he or she would surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and come to know Him, believe in Him, embrace Him, and then begin walking with Him. As we pray these things, In his exalted and precious name, amen.